1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything, everything, has its own history, like hats,
2: bottles and loss. Or green spleen and the queen, the lean being seen and <laughs> being weaning. It's all <laughs> about the history of childhood, and we're going to do the history of the child in a little bit, I think. I want to do the history of being seen. Yes, that's cool. It's all about representation. It is. So it, it comes back to gloves. Would you realise, So it's about it's about being seen with your gloves. Oh I say it's not just enough to have them. You have to be seen. You with have to be seen wearing a particular kind of glove.
1: My God, it's all to do with yes. the history of fashion. We're doing. Clothing. We are we? very soon. Yes, and we've done fabric.
2: Yes, that's it's amazing. It course, is amazing. I, w- I want to do it the history. Amazing. Well, we could do the history of viewing generally. We can. But today we will be following the links as our minds as we normally do, as we come across them, explaining how those links link up together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew that the history of bones is all about maritime history, commemoration, industry, and of course, it's all about the Reformation. Hmm. That's good. It is good, very good. Uh,
1: The man sitting opposite me is the spark that ignites all historical investigation. It is. He is. It is. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth
2: University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Thank you. That was a lovely introduction. The man sitting opposite me is the Otto von Bismarck of historical diplomacy. It's the wonderful, truly extraordinary historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello,
1: everyone. Hello. Um, We're all quite excited uh, today, aren't we? Because it's bonfire night... Um, coming up very soon, so we're doing a fire special.
2: It is. I bought tickets to go and see our local bonfire on Sunday night. How much is that? How much does a ticket cost for a, a local bonfire nowadays? For a bit, bit more than we've paid. Okay. Uh, 20, quid for four, <laughs> 20 quid for a family of four, which I thought was quite good. But uh, there are places in the past where we've paid a sizeable amount. We're probably going to talk about this later,
1: um, but when they burnt people at the stake in the Tudor period, yes. was it free? I think
2: you probably. Oh gosh, you've
1: stumped me there. Hmm. Probably. I think. You, I think hangings. You had to buy tickets. Hmm. You've stumped me. Well, can someone please get in touch and let us know whether well, we it could
2: was, find it out ourselves? Quite. I, I bet it was free. I, I'm sure it was. But it, but it, it, but burnings were a spectacle. Yeah. So you'd gather around. I mean, the thing with burning of heretics is that I imagine it might have been free because it's part of Tudor propaganda. So you want people to be seen burning because it's part of their, cleansing of their cleansing of their soul and denying them a physical body to take into the afterlife. Mm. And it basically says, if you are a heretic, if you hold these beliefs that are not the official beliefs that the country says you should have, if you are stubborn, if you are obdurately hold them, so once having been told about them, you hold them, uh, you will burn. So I imagine... Um, uh, but it's not answering your question, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But um, you, you've got these these
1: bonfires, so everyone who's going to a bonfire and bonfire, and I think of it as going to a spectacle associated with fire. And that's a very yes. ancient thing indeed. It's just suddenly rung a bell in my uh, brain full of useless things that I've made a film about this concerning the Nazis. Somewhere in Germany, and um, this was in the 1930s, and they were um, associating with their... With the um, pagan past, and they gathered around huge burning bonfires. Flame and fire was really, really important to them. Yeah, I can't tell you any more than that off the top of my head, but I will do a little have digging you,
2: around. Have you ever been to Ottery St Mary? Ah, Ottery St Mary and the burning of the tar barrels is amazing. Yeah, I've been
1: once or twice. I definitely twice. Uh, terrifying. Yes, oh, I've, brilliant!
2: I've been I've been once, and the reason we're going to a safely controlled public display <laughs> locally <laughs> is because it was utterly terrifying. Should if you just, haven't been yeah, tell to Ottery you know. St Mary in Devon, it's this quaint little town, lovely little town, which you should all go and visit. Beautiful church there. On bonfire night, on the fifth of November, the young, strong men and women of the town think that it is a good idea to carry barrels the size of beer barrels covered in tar, the inside of them are covered in tar and they are set alight and then they run up and down the street passing the barrels over to each other and and they allow the public in. I mean, behind barriers admittedly, but you basically have people running up and down with effectively dustbins full of burning tar and it is terrifying and one year, the year we went, it was so crowded um, that we almost got crushed by... It. There was a huge sort of... There was a barrel coming past us and there was a push, a crush of the crowd coming against us and we were caught by a railing.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Nearly took the wind out of us. Also, that evening, uh, I remember, because everyone had parked for about a mile and a half on the ver- on the verge of the road out of the town and some... Um, very industrious policeman had gone along and ticketed the lot of them, <laughs> so had made hun- literally hundreds of pounds in parking fines that evening. <laughs> ah. So, have you heard of the Devil's Stone? Uh, no, tell me about the Devil's the Stone. The Devil's Stone. Well, this is another. We are we are lucky living in in historic, quaint Devon, but this is in a place called Shebbear, near Great Torrington and Holdsworth in Devon, and. The idea is that the devil, once on his way to hell, dropped a large stone Mm. just outside uh, this village. And the stone is about six foot by four foot in size and it is very odd in shape and extraordinarily heavy. Mm. And every 5th of November, the villagers need to shift the position of the stone... And if they fail to do so, there will be a series of bad luck afterwards. And so the bells are rung. Men come out, uh, usually carrying crowbars <laughs> to try and shift it around. But it's a yeah, a bizarre tradition. Oh, was just the tradition, right? Nothing I, to do with fire, I but was it's wondering all about you... <laughs> it's all about the um it's all the f I suppose it could be the fire of determination in their eyes. The the fire in, and courage in their bellies mm. to do this. I um, it's a it's a bonfire night tradition.
1: So the point is is that we're there gonna be celebrating our bonfires, looking at the sky at fireworks, but there
2: are, are there are layers and layers of tradition here, aren't there? Yes. Um, An an urban myth when I was a child was that in order to have a really good bonfire, you know, the tradition is you'd you'd make a guy, and I remember making guys when I I was little, um, you know, funny sort of head and stuffed clothing, you put it on the fire. The way to make a really good one is to put a cat in the bonfire, apparently, mm -hmm. and then light the fire and then... You know supposedly, as the cat burns, it screams, and I mean it's quite horrific, mm. but that that's supposed to be the, the um, uh, guy fawks screaming. We've
1: talked about cruelty to cats a
2: lot we before, have. haven't we? Yes, I didn't know that burning but them not was not I mean I, I'm sure it's an urban myth, rather like the urban myth of putting razor blades in apples on Halloween, which we've talked about before. Mm. yes is that something that we you, they something used to do <laughs> yes yes it, it was and um, and after we'd given after we talked about our halloween special where we talked about that in the past somebody actually got in touch with us and said actually this was an urban myth in the 80s in the united states that's really interesting the, uh, how and why and when these yes. myths suddenly appear
1: um anyway where we are there's a kind of a, a rambly introduction fires it a, fan- is, a yes. fantastic topic yes isn't it, um, it is. and you can go at it in so many, many very different ways. Um, When I realised we were going to be doing fire, the first thing I thought about was when I was filming The Silk Road for the BBC in Iran, um, which was one of the most profound experiences of my life. It was a truly fabulous place. At the time, we were were the first BBC film crew allowed into Iran for a decade, and it was just when they lifted sanctions... Um, for some reason or other, I can't quite remember. It's something the Americans. Anyway, they, we were allowed to go in. We had to be a bit hush-hush bit about being a BBC film crew, but they let us in. And now it's very, very difficult indeed to get into the country. Um, we went to a place called Yazd, which is maybe six or seven hours' drive south-east of Tehran. Hmm. Um, ancient, ancient oasis city. Very beautiful indeed. And I went to a Zoroastrian temple Oh, did you indeed? I did. Um, Zoroastrianism is the world's oldest monotheistic religion. They believe in an invisible, all-powerful, single deity. Because of that, this predates Christianity, predates Islam. Because of that, it was seen as a threat to both Christianity and to Islam, and the Zoroastrians suffered... Um, Appalling persecution at the hands of both Islam, um, of Muslims and Christians. However, there are a few hotspots of Zoroastrianism that survive today. It's a, it's a it's a it's an active religion, and we went and witnessed um, some Zoroastrians at prayer, speaking an ancient form of a Zoroastrian language, which was which was completely extraordinary. It's one of those ways where where something you hear just transports you back in time. After we'd seen this prayer, we went to the nearby Zoroastrian temple where they have an eternal flame Mm. burning. And...
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: I arrived, I was given a hat. We should do something on the history of hats and Zoroastrian temple hats. Yes. I couldn't approach the flame, which was in a cordoned off, um, you were strangely forbidden to, sh- forbidden to, to yeah, it. unless I had a hat on. Right. I was then allowed to go in, I couldn't go too near, I could witness the, them tending the fire. Hmm. What... What's important about the fire in this Zoroastrian temple? So they, the Zoroastrians, they cherish fire. They don't worship it. Key to Zoroastrianism is the idea of duality, that life is an eternal battle between good and evil, between light and dark. And that's one of the reasons that they, well, they, they commit to a life based on good thoughts, good words, good deeds. But why fire is so important to them. And I was lucky enough to approach this fire... The way they walked around it and the the hushed tones they talked about it was really, really um, moving, actually. But this fire, we know, they lit the fire in 470. And it hasn't been out since. (laughs) It's not been out since. Not only that, but they've they've moved it which is really interesting. So it moved in um, 1174, then it moved again to Yazd in 1474, and then it moved within Yazd to, to this, the nearby site in the 1940s. And I, I love this idea of, of the fire never going out, a fire being cherished, a fire being tended, and actually and, and, and keeping this living, breathing thing, which is so important to their religion and having it with them. And it was almost like a, a human presence... So often in the world I've been brought up in, religion's a very, it's a very sort of quiet thing. It's, it's not animated. But with this fire, it, it, it hugely was. You've got a sense of these Zoroastrians were actually engaging with a thing. It lived, it breathed, it crackled, it flared, it made sounds. And that's what it was all about. And the, the entire focus of their religion, of their prayers and everything, was directed towards, towards this and why it's such an important symbol of them. Um, I loved it. I quite fancy becoming a Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrian isn't it? Sorry, Astrian, maybe I will. The fire itself also reminded me that the ancient Persians believed very strongly in, in the four elements in earth, wind, water and fire. So fire is just one mm. one aspect of their culture which which was was so important to the ancient Persians. And if you go to somewhere like Yazd, if you go to well, anywhere in Iran of these ancient cities around Yazd around Esfahan, um, all southeast of of Tehran you 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 have these buildings which are built out of these magnificent mud bricks, all formed from the local mud. You've got these things called wind catchers, which catch the wind and they chill the buildings inside in the periods of this intense desert heat. They're all there because the ancient Persians knew how to control water, and so it was very natural for them to have fire fit into this as well, and fire being, being part of their faith. Really kind of reduced down the complexities of life for me, and um, I thought it was magnificent. So, worshiping fire was what I wanted to talk about.
2: Mm. Let me take let me take fire in a fire and worship in a different way, because I think fire as a as a symbol has been used throughout all sorts of religions, and we've talked about the way in which burning of heretics um, was was used. I want to talk about Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. a very famous fourteenth century three part. Epic poem, um, the Divine Comedy, which has a description of the uh, Inferno, which is followed by Purgatory and Paradise, and and the Inferno is basically the journey that Dante takes through the nine circles of Hell, guided by the poet Virgil. And what I was actually really inspired by was uh, my trip this summer. And I went to Bologna this summer, and I had been wanting to go to Bologna for the last 20 years. My wife studied there during uh, during her gap year at university and has raved about it ever since, and I've never been. And we went, and we went to this beautiful church uh, called the Basilica de San Petronio, which is right in the centre, just by the Campanile, and in it, you go in and there's a series of over 20 little chapels. So these are parts of the church that would be looked after by different guilds, so sort of little groups within the, within the town who would pay for them, pay for the artwork that was put up, would tend them, and they would have be dedicated to a particular saint. And one in particular caught my eye, and this was the chapel of the Magi. And so it recreates the sort of story of, of the Magi, um, these sort of um, high priest figures. And there are three sides to it. There's a sort of open side and then three painted sides. So there's the altar straight ahead, um, which shows the, um, the, um, the Pope um, and sort of church figures. Um, and then on the as you walk in on, I think it's the left-hand side, there is basically a depiction of Dante's um, nine circles of hell, which I, I texted you earlier you did to have a look at. And, and at the top, you've got, um, there's the heart of glory surrounded by angels in heaven, the Holy Trinity, crowning of the Virgin Mary. And below that, there's a layer of saints, Um, singing praises of God, the archangel, Michael, between heaven and hell. And then the damned are punished, as described below in Dante's Divine Comedy. And if you have a look here, depicted are all the scenes of these different nine layers. So you start off in limbo, then you go through the sort of seven deadly sins of lust, gluttony, greed, anger, heresy, violence, um, uh, fraud, and then treachery. Um, And you see all sorts of demonic beings persecuting people. You've got people strung upside down um, by by their limbs. You've got people strung up on trees. You've got devils eating people, slicing people up. And then right at the bottom... You've got the figure, this is the deepest circle of hell. This is where Satan lives. And Satan here, I don't know whether you can make out, but Satan is depicted as a massive, sort of, almost, sort of, werewolf-like beast who has a head that is devouring somebody and then where his genital area is, he has another head and somebody is being stuffed into that and eaten There's a devil sort of pushing them up, Um, so it it really struck me, and I I thought this is ripe for histories of the unexpected. How on earth do I get this in? And I thought, I thought, oh, if we did the number nine. Uh, I could talk about talk about it there. But actually, it came into my mind this morning when I was reading up around fire. And I thought that this was a, you know, thinking about fire in terms of damnation and hellfire and. It's visualizing. Depiction, it. Visualizing hell. So yes. the Bible's been.
1: We have written accounts of hell. Yes. But here we have an, an actual depiction of it. This is a yes. visualization of it, yes. which is why it's so important. Yes. What I love about the limbo. The, the bit at the top, which, yes. you know, he, he's also kind of dealt quite carefully with those who who don't ever know Christ existed. So in here, Dante's got Ovid, Homer, Socrates, Aristotle and Julius Caesar. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I really like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And down in the bottom, Satan is lots of different... There are th- it's a three-headed beast. Each mouth is eating different people. So Brutus, Cassius, Judas Iscariot are all being sort of... Mer- all being chewed up
1: yeah, bit of a bit of focus on treachery there i yes. would say uh interesting that the treachery is the deepest circle of hell yes that's that's where where satan resides so out of all of these fraud violence heresy anger greed gluttony lust and, and being in limbo at the top um it's treachery but there are different types of traitors as well aren't there there's traitors to the family of course we have something more specific who's someone Judas character betrays christ itself so uh couched couched very much in religious terms, but um, it's a fascinating document.
2: Yes. Isn't it?
1: Right, where are we going to go with fire next? Well, I haven't quite finished my Zoroastrianism. Oh, good. Um, so I'm going to do a little magic trick. Okay. Okay. I'd like you to stand up. Right. I'm standing up. And then reach beneath where you're standing. Not uh, just, You were sitting on it. Okay. Oh, oh <laughs> look at that. Oh, my hey. gosh. There we are. What's this? Uh, well, let, well, I'll describe it. So, it looks like a... It looks like a piece of
2: silk, is it? Uh, it is. It's silk and wool. Sort of paisley. Together. So it's a sort of turquoise blue with paisley patterns of dark blue and gold. Yeah. And it is fringed. And it's about a, a metre in... It's about a metre square. It is. I would say. It's yeah. lovely. Is it a prayer? Um, no, prayer I, it, it's not. It's something
1: called a terme. Um, huh. So it's a cloth specifically made of natural silk and wool that's been produced in Yazd. That's a, that was bought in Yazd. Right. Um, and it's something that you, you only find it there. But the size of it and the um, pattern and the fabric that it's, the, uh, the, the, the threads that it's made out of, all, all combined together make that something that is very, very specifically yes. from Yazd. And the pattern is really interesting. You said it was paisley. What you've actually got there is a distinctive design called a bote, mm. um which is... Well, some say it was inspired by a pear or a cypress tree, but others say that it represents the flame of Zoroaster. Mm. Um, if you look at it, it's, it's, it's round at the bottom, a bit like a pear curved round, and it could be, it could be a flame fizzing round. But we know that pattern as paisley um, because it became... It was exported from Persia to northern India where the English came across it and then they managed to export it in the 17th century we're talking about now um, through the East India Company, then it came to the UK, particularly it came to um, a town called Paisley, a little town outside Glasgow where they made the Paisley pattern. They embraced this wonderful Persian, exotic, foreign-looking looking pattern. Mm. And then particularly Queen Victoria had a role in making it, making it famous. So that's my beautiful piece of silk from Yask.
2: It's lovely, and we can think about fire in other ways as well. I mean, we haven't—we've talked about it very much in religious terms. We've talked about it symbolically, what it represents. I think you can also think about the history of fire and the discovery of fire, and then the uses that humans have put fire to. And you can think about sort of f- the power to ward off animals, to keep warm, the ability to cook with with fire. The ability to use it for industrial purposes as well, Um, which I think is a very nice segue into the interview I did at Chalk Valley. Chalk Valley, I did so. um, Chalk Valley this year, James and I were doing
1: part of our tour for our Histories of the Unexpected. We came along and we we spoke about Histories of the Unexpected with all of our props and our craziness. Um, But we interviewed a few people along the way, and I came across the wonderful Will Sherman who runs MedievalArrows.co.uk.
2: Oh, yes.
1: He's an arrowsmith, and he's absolutely fantastic. So here you are. Here is the interview that I recorded at Chalk Valley this summer with Will. Hello, everyone. I'm at the Chalk Valley History Festival. You'll be able to hear some drumming, and I suspect there'll be some massive explosions in a minute because there's some some World War II people over there with a big tank. And I'm here with Will Sherman, who I've just done a little show with um, on the rise and the fall of the longbow. Will makes arrowheads. And so we're actually going to be talking a bit... Um, this is going to feature in a podcast on fire. We're going to do the history of fire, which is quite exciting. So you spend a lot of your time around some fairly significant heats. <laughs> I do, yeah. Why did you get into it? Uh,
3: I got into it by making my first bow as a thing to have. Put it on the wall, was interested in the longbow. And once How old I'd, were you? Uh, uh, it was recent. It was about five or six years ago. OK. And once I'd made one, I wanted to make another one. And the more I made, the more people I met who make them properly... I just got into doing it as accurately as I could historically, yeah. um, and I found out fairly quickly that when you shoot a longbow, you lose a lot of arrows, and arrowheads are expensive. So I figured making them would be the best way around that
1: problem. <laughs> that was an economic than definitely, yeah. So how do you how, take us through the process of making an arrowhead? Well, actually, there are, then we'll talk about all the different types of arrowheads. Okay, yeah, do, you have, yeah. do you have a favourite one to make?
3: Well, um, the one I'm working on at the moment in particular is a Type 9, which is known colloquially as the plate cutter. It's the arrowhead that people think of as the one that goes through plate armour.
1: OK. Why is it called a Type 9?
3: Um, they're, they're classified by various typologies, and um, the one that I use have numbers over them. So okay. it just happens to fall into the Type 9 category. So what does a Type 9 look like? It's kind of it's, it's classed as a bodkin, so it's got a four sides, yep. but it's diamond section, and it's got a leaf profile.
1: OK. Um, and so how would you go around making one of those?
3: Uh, well the basic process is you start with a square bar of metal, um, I use mild steel for most heads or raw iron if I'm making them for museum quality because yeah. that's what they were using back then. And uh, you start with the square bar, you flatten the end of it into kind of a spoon shape and you roll that up which gives you the socket which goes on the end of the arrow. Yeah, yeah. You then cut that off the bar and you can do whatever you want to the point then. You can make it long and thin like a needle bodkin, or you can make it short and stubby like a type 9 or, or whatever you prefer. Yeah.
1: And what about the, the forge? Where do you actually do it? How do you get things hot enough to be able to, to, to work the steel?
3: When I first started, I built a forge in the back garden, it's using a kitchen sink and a hairdryer. amazing hair dryer. how
1: many people do that. I just made one.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I just looked on YouTube and I, I built a little brick tower and I dropped a kitchen sink into it, filled it with cat litter, and that worked really well with a
1: hairdryer. Wow.
3: Yeah, and then funnily enough, I came to Chalk Valley last year and I met a guy here who had a forge that was empty, and he said, do you want to come and move in? And I said, definitely. OK. And it was an old Victorian forge on a farm wow. in Wimborne, and it was perfect, and it just took off from there, really.
1: OK. And so, I mean, describe how those forges work. Is it brick?
3: Yeah, brick? They're, they're made in loads of different ways. Um, the traditional way is just to build a clay base, or a clay basin, I suppose. You fill it with your fuel, which would be charcoal or coal or coke, and you just pump air in. From yeah. the bottom or the side, yeah. yeah.
1: So how hot does it have to get to make one of these arrowheads?
3: Well, the working temperature is about 1,000 degrees. 1,000 degrees. Yeah, people go, oh, do you get it red hot? And the answer is no, because red hot's nowhere near hot enough. Right. Red hot is when you put it back in the fire, because it's got too cold. So about a 1,000 degrees or a yellow-orange temperature. Um, the hotter it is, the quicker the metal moves and spreads. Yeah. And as it cools down, you can do what's called planishing, where you tidy up your work, because the metal doesn't move as quickly.
1: Huh. How, how long does it take to get it that hot?
3: Not very long. If you're making a... T- charcoal fire in a forge with a good air intake like a bellows or a blower it probably takes about five or ten minutes to get that up to
1: temperature oh yeah wow yeah that really surprised me i thought it was gonna be like three days or something like that. <laughs> no no <laughs> to, they're that efficient
3: yeah ah. yeah
1: okay and so and what's the, the the actual technique you're using kind of gloves and tongs and tools to take me through the process yeah
3: the, the bar that i would normally start with is about uh two or three feet long yeah um, and you can hold that with your hand quite comfortably because it's so efficient. At the end, gets very hot, but that heat doesn't travel up the bar very quickly at all. Oh, I see. And then once it gets too close to the fire, you would then use gloves or tongs to hold the, the work.
1: Yeah. And how do we know about how it was done in the past? I mean, are you how, how confident can you be that the way you're doing it is is faithful to, to what was done in the past? Is there lots of material or is it a semi-guesswork?
3: Um, a little bit is guesswork, but primarily there are... Enough arrowheads in museums now that you can go and look at and you can hold and you can look at from different angles and you can really realise what shape of metal they were using, what types of hammer they were using. And it gets to a point where you can't do that without doing it a certain way.
1: No, Okay. What do you mean by types of hammer? Explain that.
3: Well, if you've got a square-faced hammer, that will leave a certain type of mark. If you've got a very flat hammer, that will leave particular marks. So you can use that to reverse-engineer what you're doing and get as close as you can.
1: So, I mean, the we've got this process of making these arrowheads then um you get these curious shaped ones as well don't you i've seen one that's like almost like a crescent
3: yep What was that for that's known as the rope cutter in this country and it's had a load of different theories attached to it cutting ropes on ships cutting horses tendons all that kind of thing i've even heard from somebody that they would tie a bag of poison between the two spikes and shoot them at people and things like that which are they're lovely and romantic but in reality it's just a hunting head Okay. You find it all over the world in different cultures. It's still used today in places like Japan and Finland as a hunting head. The reason it has two spikes push, uh, facing the wrong way is because as it spins in flight, it gathers the feathers of, or the fur of whatever you're shooting, takes it to the ground without damaging the meat, ah. and then you can go and collect it.
1: Oh, I see. A very clever one. Very clever, yeah. people in history. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
3: more than us probably.
1: Yeah, and um, you make bows as well, don't you? I do, yep. yeah. Yeah do you prefer doing that to making arrows? I hate making bows. <laughs> why
3: um, I don't like making bows for people because there's a lot of risk involved if they blow up they're very expensive and you have to refund people and you what can't you mean, ever guarantee. Blow up. well it's kind of a piece of wood that's being bent a very long way yeah. and if that piece of wood has a floor in it that you haven't spotted or it's just got a natural desire to break on you it will just break there's nothing you can do about that yeah so if someone's paying you five or six hundred pounds for a bow and you make it to your best of your abilities and you send it off to them and it breaks on them yeah that's you know
1: that's, that's pretty tough isn't yeah it? but how do you go about doing that though how do you make your bow
3: um well i make my bows from you or elm or hazel or ash as they would have been done back then yeah where do you uh, get that from you can get it from all over the place what i found worked fairly well was giving out my card to tree surgeons and uh um, oh, nice yeah, gardeners and that kind of thing who come in contact with trees. Yeah. And I just say to them, if you're ever cutting down these particular bow woods, give me a shout and I'll come and pick up anything that's usable.
1: Because there's a specific type of the wood you actually need, isn't there, for the bow?
3: Yeah, some woods you can use any of it, um, and some woods you have to be very careful with what you're using. So for the, the famous yew bow, ideally you want a very small amount of sapwood on the back, which is the part under the bark, and a large amount of the heartwood, which is the compression part of the wood. Yeah. And that forms this lovely natural laminate. Yeah, and works very well as a bow yeah.
1: and they're, they're very difficult to fire aren't they well, shit. yeah shit, arrows I did get in trouble with that um, one of the you had a little competition didn't you because so we were doing our um, rise and fall of the medieval longbow and the challenge was if anyone could draw your bow they got to keep it yep <laughs> I can do it I can do it no one can do it no, no one, one, can one could ba- no. barely move the thing at all no Um what is the, you know, why is that? How, how much pressure do you need to be able to pull on them?
3: The bow that I was shooting today was about 145 pounds. Um, that's hard to explain to someone who hasn't done it, but it's like picking up a 145 pound weight off the floor with two fingers.
1: Okay. I'm trying to think what might weigh 145 well, that, pounds. I mean,
3: the heaviest bow's got up to well over 180 pounds or something, which is the weight of a full grown man. Yeah. So picking that. Full-grown man off the ground with, with two, two fingers. fingers over and over again. <laughs> it's equivalent to that, yeah. yeah.
1: And it was interesting. We did a little exercise, didn't we? tried to see how many how many arrows we could fire in in, in thirty seconds. We yep. did. And um, everyone just have a little pause, have a little think. How many arrows do you reckon Will fired in thirty seconds? Doo, doo, doo. and <laughs> you did. Four. <laughs> Four, and that was full on, and you were knackered, yeah. Yeah, arms yeah. shaking a bit at the end of it.
3: Yeah, you hear a lot of numbers being kind of thrown around like 12 or 15 or 18 or even higher. And I think the problem comes from reenactment events where people are shooting very lightweight bows in which they can shoot lots of arrows in a minute. Yeah. And that then builds via Chinese whispers into these great big numbers. And a lot of that then goes towards historians writing books and TV shows and it just never ends. Yeah. But in reality, with a full-weight military bow, you're, an, you're in a lot of stress and a lot of tension on those bows. You, you can't do more than yeah. five or six a minute or something. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or they've, um, There's an actual battle going there on. Is. Right there is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think we should probably leave it there because it's going to make a load of noise. Um, Thank you very much, Will. You're welcome, cheers. Um, I'm really pleased to come and have a look at your forge now.
3: Thank you very much.
2: That's terrific, Sam. Um, one, actually, one thing that I do have to say is, um, since it is Bonfire Night coming up, um, I think one of the reasons that Guy Fawkes and Bonfire Night has stayed in the memory so much is because of the fact that remember rhymes with November. Mm -hmm. In in the in the line that goes, remember, remember the fifth of November, gunpowder treason and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. A stick and a stake for King George's sake. Holler, boys! Holler, boys! Make the town ring. Holler, boys! Holler, boys! God save the king! Hip hip hooray! That's excellent, isn't I it? Think that's it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think just you know finish off when you're there looking at your fire. It's all about communication, isn't it? It's about passing on a message um, from one person to another person. You're there for a reason, and it's not just flames. Someone's trying to tell you something important. And what I love about Bonfire Night is actually it's the past trying to speak to us. The message has actually come from the past. It's become imbued with its own message. But as we started off talking about martyrs talking about burnings um, that was all done by the tudor state to communicate their message wasn't it to it do was. con- m- communicate the message of control they also burnt books they also lit beacons to communicate messages with and this comes to the, the, the you know a much more broadly widely understood history of smoke signals yes and absolutely. being able to read fire being able to to understand the implications of it and the most famous example i think is captain cook using um, fire as the clearest proof that when he arrived in New Zealand or Australia, that there were already humans there. And if you um, if you read his accounts, it, everything sort of stops when they when they see smoke, when they see fire, much more so than whether it's footprints in the sand or other evidence of human occupation. Fire utterly fixates the Europeans that they've, 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 there are other humans in this area, which I love. Before you go, everyone, um, James and I are on tour. We've got our new show on the Tudors. We're also touring our old show as well, our our original multi-period show. So do please check out the website. We've got a tour page dedicated on the website. And come and see us. James, where are we going next? We are... Well,
2: next we will be going to Winchester, to the BBC History Festival and after that we are going to Limington and after that we are going to the Shelley Theatre in Bournemouth. Oh yeah, I'm very excited I'm about really that. Excited. This is the theatre run by, that was run by, Mary Shelley's son. So I'm, we're super excited about that. And then we're into... oh, Captain, we've got some Oak Devon Captain gigs, Crediton Arts
1: Centre, up to London for Highgate, upstairs at the Gatehouse
2: we were there last year. It's oh, a
1: smashing
2: brilliant. little theatre in Highgate.
1: Yeah. yeah, a few more Devon gigs, Calstock Arts, Mamhead, and
2: on and on. And we have a... Uh, do you know what I, I saw on Twitter yesterday? That our audio book of the first book is out. And we've just had our... Uh, little series books coming out. The Tudors, we've got lots on the on fire in the Tudors, a book on Romans, a book on World War II and a book on Vikings. Absolutely. So um, if you do enjoy what
1: you're here, please leave us a review on iTunes, it does make all the difference. Subscribe to the podcast, tell all your friends, we're on Twitter, you can follow me at Dr Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Dable and you can follow us on at Unexpected Pod. We also have a Patreon page, Patreon forward slash histories of the unexpected. That We're trying to save up some money to be able to record in a proper studio and get some proper equipment because at the moment we're recording at the bottom of my garden next to the railway line and it would be really great if we could give this podcast the focus and attention that i believe in my heart that it deserves but anyway we couldn't do this without you listening at all so thank you so
2: much for your time bye take care guys and be safe at bonfire night